This is The Dish, the Medical Laboratory Professionals Association of Ontario's podcast. This interview is part of our Women in STEM series. Christine Bruce is currently working as the Senior Director of the Laboratory Medicine Program at UHN. She spoke with MLPAO CEO Michelle Hode about getting into the medical laboratory field, her trajectory as a leader, and some of the challenges and rewards of working in the lab. Um, so today we are very, very happy that we have um, Christine Bruce joining us to talk to us about our Women in STEM series. So we're going to start, get right into it. So tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're currently working. Okay, so as you said, I'm Christine Bruce, and I, I currently serve as the Senior Director of the Lab Medicine Program at the University Health Network in Toronto. Um, it's my dream job. I've actually wanted this job ever since I was a, a puppy lab technologist, and so to, to finally be here after years of, of developing and learning and working towards it is, is, a, is, a, is a career milestone for sure. Um, so UHN, for those who don't know, is largely comprised of the Toronto General, Toronto Western, Princess Margaret, and Toronto Rehab Hospitals. And I think collectively we support about 1.2 million patient visits um, over a year and my team generates about 27 million lab tests annually for them. Okay tell us a little bit about yourself so where did you grow up you know um, where did you spend your childhood did you move around? Actually, I, I stayed put. So I grew up in Bancroft, Ontario. And so it's a small town between Peterborough and Ottawa. And I think when I was growing up, the size of it was about 4,000 people, um, just south of Algonquin Park. And I guess our claim to fame back then was being the mineral capital of Canada. So, so I touted that pretty highly when I was growing up, like it was a, a big deal. Um, in its heyday, Bancroft was a mining town and had a very active lumber industry. So my dad was a millwright at the lumber mill. And my mom owned a small and, and popular local cafe and so my little brother and I basically had our summer jobs decided for us if you can well imagine and so we had the very simple day-to-day physically working hard do-it-yourself kind of lifestyle and when it was time to play the hobbies were sort of the outside stuff you know camping and canoeing and hunting and skidooing that kind of thing and of course rock hounding because that hobby just goes with the postal code and I lived there till I moved away to school in 1995. Okay so um you know big question we always get asked us as we get older is what did you want to do what do you want to be when you grow up so what was your answer to that <laughs> um, well I actually when I was thinking about this I, I actually had to ask around to see what the heck it was because I thought I'd have so many things but I, I totally didn't so when I was little I, I do recall I absolutely wanted to be a ballerina and not because of all the frill in the pink and you can go ahead and giggle <laughs> I know it's funny to hear me say that. Um, for, for me, though, it was it wasn't about the frilly stuff. It was about the grace because I didn't grow up in a very soft, refined kind of kind of lifestyle. Right, we're very very workaday kind of folks, and so perhaps I was subliminally seeking all of that kind of stuff out. But it doesn't get more graceful than ballet, right? So mom and dad gave me a ton of, of really good skills and and lots of talents that have enabled me well in my life. But extending into that lovely arabesque pose was not one of them. And so and I know that if people are listening to this, those who know you're having a good giggle about it right now at the very thought of me doing ballet but I really thought that would be the place I would go and so but I did realize pretty early that this is going to be a hobby at best and so then I thought more realistically what would success look like for me and sort of mid high school I was thinking okay I'm going to be a radio announcer because I loved radio I still love radio um, and boy oh boy can I ever talk so that was the place I was going to go and I think I stuck with that story until about grade 11 and that was my destiny the headphones and, and the microphone and I could just see it all out before me I was probably going to come and work at chum fm or something and be the next uh, morning show host <laughs> at least till grade 11. <laughs> that is so great um so what so when did you become interested in sciences um I think 
It was probably because I thought about, you know, the getting into the science career, it was probably in, in grade 11 when I actually realized, I gave up radio and realized I had a bit of a proficiency. But if I do think back, it was probably when I learned how to work in a kitchen. So there's a tremendous amount of science, obviously, that goes into a, a kitchen or a bakery. And I think when your bread doesn't rise the first time, or you, you realize you can't uncook an egg, that you appreciate science very quickly. And because I'm a why person, I want to know why these things happen. Um, I wanted to prevent my kitchen issues. And so I just got into the science of, of cooking kind of very early on. And so in my formal academic years, then I started to take sciences and languages, and I began to appreciate all of those whys that I could get my, my hands on in that space. And so, you know, something like learning how fireworks worked and why they are the colors that they are and doing experiments about that, why flour can be explosive or why light travels, how it does, those types of things all became really um, interesting for me in those formative kind of academic years. And it's all basic, of course, and I, I just do like to find the answer to things. And, and science is a good foil for that. So when I had that aptitude and started to have all of my my good marks in the sciences, then that was where I thought I would probably end up working um, in this arena and probably in healthcare because that was just kind of interesting to me. Not so much of it um, in sort of the formative school years did you focus on healthcare, but um, I could see it myself lending my my interest in that direction, and so so I assumed I would go in that direction. Okay, mm -hmm. um, so talk, let's talk a little bit about the education piece, and I know the question says you know, kind of what led you to a science career, but just curious around, you know, what's the, what is the education career path looked like for you? And, and, um, you know, and the second question I think I want to combine is, you know, why do you believe continuing education is important in sciences? Yeah, I really had a strong aversion to getting a degree. I, I think because it wasn't obvious what one does with a degree that I just couldn't see myself going in that direction. And I really wanted to go do something. And so um, I kept on flipping and looking through all sorts of, of those catalogs, those, those, you know, those, those sort of newsprint style um, books with all of the different um, programs being offered in them. And I picked up the one for St. Lawrence College and I was flipping through that because it was in Kingston. I'm like, well, that's not too far away. So I was flipping through. And I read a, a few of the different programs, and then I came upon medical laboratory technology. That was what it was called, was, was this medical lab technology. And I didn't know what it was. And isn't that a strong commentary? I didn't know what it was. <laughs> Most people still don't know what it is 20 years later. So I read the description, and I'd, and I'd never heard of it. And I had never had lab work done, so I didn't even know that these types of labs existed. But it did talk a lot about doing chemistry and biology and all the things I liked. And then as I was reading along some of the other courses, there's this thing called phlebotomy that I had no idea what that was. And I figured I'll cross that hill when I got to it, right? And and then I just decided that this is it. I mean, I could see myself doing experiments in biology and, and chemistry and, and, and it's healthcare related. So, so this is what I'm going to do. And then, so then talk a little more about around the additional education you've done and sort of how you've ended up. And, and the reason I wanna talk about that is I think there's a lot of people in our science world mm -hmm. that you know finish, maybe graduate with an undergrad or maybe you know get an MLT um, program and then think like what's the benefit of continuing and I think it's it would be nice for you to kind of share mm -hmm. what what you did and why yep sure um okay so I as I've been thinking back because I've I've talked to others about this who have wanted to pursue other sort of content programs I have been in school learning or doing some workplace sponsored thing since I was five years old so when I started in kindergarten 
you know, obviously you're in kindergarten and I have never not been enrolled in something um, since then up to and including today. So I think that's pretty cool and, and clearly speaks to, to my need to continue to develop for all kinds of reasons. But I truly did think that once I got my MLT at St. Lawrence, that that would be the ride to retirement because it was special, right? And it's, it's still special. No one can do what an MLT does I mean, it's the law. And so in that sort of early moment of becoming one, I thought, well, this is, this is the passport to success because no one's ever going to compete with you for a gig. You've got this job forever. Um, but then when I got my first MLT job as a laboratorian at uh, MDS, which is now um, Life Labs, and I worked on the bench for about 18 months and then realized very quickly this was not for me. It was far too um, repetitive of a day. And, and thank goodness we have people who love that kind of work. It was just not something for me. And I didn't notice that when I was learning about how to be an MLT because there was so much diversity in what you had to learn. Something was new every single day that you had to absorb. But when you start to work on, say, the hematology bench and you're reading a smear every day, that wasn't um, something that I, I could really be inspired by. So... I learned more about lab medicine while I was doing that. And I wanted to just get a better idea of what this whole space of being at, at MDS was all about. And then I realized very quickly, I don't want to do the tests. I want to lead and support the people that do the tests. And so I started to navigate my way into more administrative and, and leadership roles. But once you do that, once you start to chase those types of jobs, being an MLT isn't enough, right? Because you need more than the subject matter expertise to do that. And so you've got to round yourself out um, with some leadership skills. And so I thought that being able to identify a leukemia on a slide was going to be my, my saving grace forever and ever. But when you want to lead those people, you need a heck of a lot more because they're the ones doing that, not you. So over the last 20 years, I've sort of taken that MLT job and I've piled a ton of con ed on top of it. And so I started um, with getting my Bachelor of Health Administration to sort of formalize the those administrative skills. And when you look at job postings that are leadership focused, employers tend to want a bachelor of something. And so that's what I chose to do. And I and it was I found as I was learning it because I'd had some management jobs along the way that I had largely obtained a lot of that information and a lot of those skills in, in doing those leadership roles where maybe my organization had already invested in me. But when you transfer to another organization, having that bachelor is really quite helpful. And, and if you've got some internal skills built up from, from having been a leader or supervisor on the job, it's just that much easier to, to do all of those academics. So then I also um, obtained my Lean Six Sigma black belt. So that was a big deal because process engineering was the big buzzword and leaning out your organization and your operation was a big buzzword. And so I wanted to stay on pace with change and be able to be credible talking about it. So, so I got that um, black belt over time. It took a few years to do that, but that just gave me credibility to introduce change and to be um, reputable with people who needed to try to buy into some of the crazy things that I might've been suggesting. Um, and then I took a role for leading, um, I was the director of quality at um, a laboratory. And so I thought, well, let's be credible. So I got my clinical lab um, quality manager certification from the Michener, which um, was really, really helpful. And then I ended up leading, um, had a more senior leadership position. And I just realized that some of the things that were missing within my organization was some real depth of support in human resources. And so how can I help them? Well, I'll get that capability myself. And so I took my um, certified human resources professional certificate so that I would have those skills to just be a better enabler um, in the workplace. 
Um, and then after that, I got my Master of Health Administration because, you know, several years have passed. Well, now the Master's is the new bachelor's. And so I need to round that out and keep building those skills. And, and I did. And I sort of got an introduction to research um, in that. And then subsequent to that, I got my Certified Health Executive designation, which is really helpful and becoming very uh, meaningful for, for employers. And so I wanted to make sure that there weren't skills I was missing. Perhaps something new was happening that I wasn't on the inside track of. And so okay, I need to chase this designation too. And so I'm running out of things, <laughs> running out of things to chase and skills to get. Um, so these days I'm working on my doctorate in business administration. And so that is really meant for me to leverage research to understand the levers of employee engagement, particularly in lab medicine, so that I can influence the future leadership practices in that respect. And that's a big deal. So to go from someone who does things very, very practically and organically and very process focused to suddenly take your mind in a research direction is very, very challenging to the brain for me, for sure. So it's definitely um, it's a big bite to, to take off and try to, to process, but um, it's, it's definitely something I'm enjoying, but it's putting me on my heels because it's not coming to me as easily as maybe other things in the past have. But either way, I mean, I feel I've taken my education in a direction that ultimately makes me a stronger, stronger people leader. And it makes me a stronger stakeholder in the system. And I can just be a better partner to those two communities on their own and bringing them together. And I think that whatever I chase, any of those academic pursuits that I just went over, I've always done it with lab medicine in mind and how I can apply it in that space and just make it that much better and, and to help it out in some way, because I'm just that committed to it. I wouldn't ever see myself going in a place that doesn't have lab tied to it in some way, because that's just where my, my strength and my passions will always lie. And all of this other stuff just goes to make it that much better. That's really that helpful. Is that good? Yeah, yep. okay. that's awesome. Um, the one thing I'm just gonna add on to that, which I think is good to hear is, I think there's a perception that exists within our society where, you know, length of time at one employer indicates right. um, sort of um, integrity or, and I think, and I think, and I, I like to use this as, you're a good example of the benefit of learning and moving. Mm -hmm. And I think that concept is, is hard for some people to really embrace, right? Mm -hmm. And it, I think just with you sharing that right now really shows that there is benefit to work at a certain location, be able to add as much value as you can, and then realize there's other opportunities, move on. Yeah. And I think that's starting to be adopted more and people are accepting that, that it's, that it's, that it's good that you know, you're coming into a new position, but you bring all this experience you know, partnered with that education piece. So that's amazing. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about STEM. So, you know, I, 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 I have found that like sort of in the past year, it's, it's been the buzzword. So we're going to use that in the next few questions. So first, what's been the most challenging about being a woman in STEM? And then the flip side is what's been the most rewarding? Right. When I was thinking about just having a STEM, not just, I mean, that's the wrong way to put it, but to, to have a STEM career, um, I, I think that it was hard for me to identify challenges associated with it because I've had such a cool career, right? I've, I have done lots of really interesting things in lab medicine and I've looked at it through so many different lenses and I've had so many lovely employers along the way who've all given me some extra set of skills that I could take to the next employer and just make it bigger, um, greater, more successful, what, what have you. And so to say there was been really challenging about it and to not have it be about the work uh, was really hard for me to, to come up with sort of a 
a good understanding of what of how that should be reflected. But I think the toughest thing as I've been rising through the ranks of leadership in a STEM career and a, and a solid STEM career, right? I've stayed in this career space for, for my entire um, time working was not having a professional mentor. So as I go through all of the tactical skills of being a lab technologist and then applying that in a business development space or applying a quality lens to it or finding a way to be innovative or to have mergers and acquisitions as an accountability, those types of things are all tactical and, and things that I can use my, my technical bench strength and to continue to bolster because oftentimes the people around the table are coming at it from a business place and they don't have the technical bench strength. So I sort of round them out. But then as you want to move past that and if you want to get to a senior leadership level or to an executive level, not having a mentor to help navigate perhaps some of the the political nuance, as an example, has been really, really challenging. And it's so important when you're trying to take your career just that next step higher or to a different um, sphere of influence. And so, I mean, I don't read blood smears anymore, so that is not helping me. <laughs> I need somebody who's going to help me figure out how to navigate all of that. And so I'd love to be able to access mentorship from someone who's figured out the secret sauce of senior leadership and balance and that grace that I was pursuing, you know, so many years ago when I thought I could be a ballerina. And I like the idea of having formal and informal mentorships for women. And it can be really difficult because there are so few women in this field's executive positions, right? Very few executives. I, I don't know that I, I know more than two have actually come out of the ranks of lab medicine. Very often they will come from a different um, allied health profession or what have you, because the portfolios as you rise higher tend to bring in all of these different diagnostic groups. And so very rarely is it a lab person sitting at the top of that org chart. And so I've got to figure out how to manage that, right? So very few executive leaders are rooted in lab medicine. That's my reality. Very often lab medicine is woven into a bigger bucket. That's my reality. I have no doubt that I will be the person that cracks through that one day. I just have to figure out how. And I think that having a good mentor will be really helpful for that. But I mean, either way, I know the value of mentorship. And so I can at least change that conversation by being a mentor myself to emerging leaders and, and for, for women who are wanting to to pursue um, higher leadership roles. I can be that person who guides them at least to the sphere that I'm comfortable with and the things that I know. Um, but that is certainly a gap um, and a challenge for me right now um, and where I'm at in my career anyway. Um, so then the flip side of that, what do you think has been the most rewarding? Yeah. And I thought long and hard about this too, because I'm like, it's all rewarding, right? And I thought, you know, one of those pithy answers would be, oh, it's the people. <laughs> But so then I had a good serious thought about it. And so, you know, I've reported to and collaborated with some very powerful men, lots and lots of men in the, in the you know, the lab days of yesteryear. Um, and, and where I had to make myself work a lot harder in order to keep up with them. And I had to overcompensate with competence, right? I, for some reason, I felt I had to do that. Whether it was required, I, I don't even know that they were asking of it asking it of me, but I felt like I had to do it. And I felt slightly inferior. And just that experience in, in boardrooms was just a little bit off putting for lots of different reasons. So I started to present in in boardrooms it, at very junior in my career. So I left the lab at 18 months into the MLT career. And then I started to get into business development and innovation. And so when you're doing that, you end up in boardrooms presenting a big idea to somebody to get the buy in that yes, we should go down this, this new innovative pathway. And so I remember going into some of those um, boardrooms, 
all these men in powerful dark suits, right? And that's just the, the classic cliche, except I remember there was always one woman at the table who I, I quite, quite liked and totally a cliche at the end of the day. And I'd be presenting some innovation and I wanted to run with it. And then they would poke all kinds of holes in the ideas as they should, that was their job, but it was really um, a confidence buster. And so, and by the way, like all of those executives were wonderful people. They were lovely, delightful, all well-meaning, but all there to do a very powerful and important job um, in maintaining the, the lab industry that I was in. And so I wondered how the heck would I ever get to that table? And so the feeling in that moment was probably like, how would I get to the table? It was just like me doing a pirouette. Very, very unlikely it felt as I was having all my ideas chopped up. But what really got to me was how much I didn't like the feeling. And so I didn't like being unimpressive and I didn't like not having all the answers. And so Although it probably wasn't appropriate to feel that way, it really made me work this that much harder. It propelled me to be that much more competent because I didn't like how, how I felt in the moment. And so it sounds like a silly thing to be a reward, but it's actually been probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it just made me work to my full potential because boy, oh boy, <laughs> someone challenging whether I'm competent, does that ever propel me in a direction that uh, you can't really turn off? And so that that reward of plumbing the depths of what I actually had to bring to the table, I think was huge. And the pressure, most of it totally self-imposed, by the way, um, has absolutely given me the grit that I've needed to get to the position I'm in today and to go and take all of those challenges of the next new job and being in this job for this many months or this many years and, and rising to that challenge of taking on something totally new and nebulous in some sort of foreign place. I mean, that has made me, th those experiences um, in those boardrooms has made me very able to, to just go navigate those things today because I've just worked that much harder. And it's it's gotten me here and it'll absolutely get me to, to where I go next. I'm certain of it. Okay. Um, what piece of advice mm -hmm. do you wish you were given at the onset of your career? So I wish that someone had told me to think much bigger than, than I did when I started as an MLT. So when I got to Bancroft as a, as a fresh MLT, and I think it was even in a job share because there weren't a lot of jobs at the time that I graduated, that's what I thought lab medicine was. Like I thought it was go, putting on your scrubs, going to the bench, you know, doing your slides and then, and then going home. Like I thought that was the institution of lab medicine. And over time, my why reflex has made me really explore the, the bigger space of lab medicine to the point where I am proficient in all of it, because I just, I have to have that. And so I've ensured that I have competence and proficiency in as many aspects as I can. I think this, it, it is a secret to, to some of my successes and perhaps it's all of them. I'm not really sure, but it's a, it's a lot of them. And I've really tried to understand and influence everything from funding to education, to advocacy, to operations and innovation and business development and certification and regulation, all of it so that every possible nuance is covered somewhere in between because I do so much better when things are done with me instead of to me. And so I can participate in all of these realities and perhaps guide them in directions that I can be proud to lead in. And all of that's going to be upside, right? It's upside for me. It's upside for my, my teams. It's upside for the industry. And so having this depth of transferable understanding is so valuable in terms of my own practitioner and leadership credibility 
my own ability to represent the industry really, really fulsomely, both within my workplace and, and outside. And I think all of that will really benefit the people I care about, which are those employees who are working every day to try to improve the patient experience as best they can in whatever way they can. And so I had no knowledge when I started to be an MLT about all the different things that influence that day of work for that person who comes in and does that smear and gives that diagnosis to the physician. Um, and I wish that I'd known it more because I probably would have approached the, the work world a little bit differently. I might've done some things a little bit faster. I might've made some decisions a little bit differently if I knew how all of these little inner workings went together. I feel that that was a bit of a gap. And, and when I work on some of the program advisory committees that I do, I offer that up as a suggestion, as a giving that insight to people to understand how all the bits and pieces work is, is so, so vital because then everyone knows where they sit in the broader scheme of things. It's, it's super important. What brings you most joy about your job? <laughs> Today, nothing. <laughs> COVID brings me ultimate joy. Um, you know, it's 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 such a a loaded question, right? Because you're sitting doing your work every day and you're not really feeling joyful. You, but but then there are moments where you just feel a little bit lighter. Perhaps you've got a bit of a a bit of an extra lilt in your step on your way for coffee. And, I, and I've had a couple of those moments this week where I've been thinking back about it and, and what it was that, that sort of made me feel a little bit brighter than perhaps I had been. And I feel like it's when I get to say yes. I love saying yes. And so every day, and, and I know you know, everyone listening knows, you're going to come in and you're going to hear no because, right? We don't have money. We don't have staff. We don't, we don't have all these things. And I love finding a way to change the conversation to yes. If oftentimes this, we can do it if we have ABC in place, there's lots of ways to do things, but changing the conversation and the audience mindset to one of possibility feels quite good to me. And so when you think about the state of the nation of lab medicine, this beleaguered workforce, largely unknown, largely uncredited for their contributions, not just, just to the COVID testing effort, but to maintaining the testing and everything else while the system resources continue to drive in the COVID direction, completely evaporated, it's easy to go to a grim place. And it's easy to go to that grim place because it is in fact quite grim. And so I focused on continuing to drive at least a positive conversation and trying to get everyone to focus on the yes and to focus on the potential and to creating a little bit of workplace joy, even in the tiniest of ways. And so maybe it's something as simple as a cookie wellness a day, and maybe it's creating leadership development opportunities. Maybe it's thankful Thursdays. Maybe it's doing something enormous for, for a, a customer that they need some kind of support. Maybe it's just being present, right? Just being present sometimes is just a way to, to generate some joy on the, on the lab floor, so being present somewhere else in the system. Having an employee approach me to ask if I can help with something and actually saying yes and being able to do it is, is a triumph and that feels good. The other day I had a physician share with me that they were having an IT challenge just as a happenstance. It was just something we were talking about. And I was able to make the problem go away. It wasn't my job to make it go away. It doesn't matter. I was able to do something and say, yes, I can handle this for you. I've had labs call in and ask me to help them work through massive crises because they have no staff. Yes, I can, right? I can bring my team into it and figure out how can we help you. Saying yes and making the time and investing in the system is, is super joyful to me, although it may not feel that way in the moment. It may feel really stressful and, and really impactful and a bit worrisome. But once you get to the other side where you've actually created some joy for someone else or some relief for someone else, it's, it's incredibly meaningful. And, and that's what gives me the skip in my step as I'm on my way to coffee, if I get one. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, what is something that you wish the world could know about women in STEM? I mean, that's <laughs> the world. I was thinking of what would it be like to talk to the world? Um, you know, as I, I think it's, as I said earlier, I mean, the being a, a woman in, in STEM has has not really resonated as as significantly with me because I've I've had so many interesting opportunities and they haven't been barred largely by by gender or or anything. And I haven't felt some of those inequities that other have felt. But I do know and I do have an appreciation that they exist. So I thought, well what would I share um, with the world? Like what's the one piece that I think is the most interesting perhaps is the wrong word, but the most sort of worth talking about. Um, and to me, because even though it's not as pervasive here, I think that the gender balance and gender equity needed in research and in academics is just so key. As I'm thinking about doing my own um, PhD, as I was going through some of the, the stats of the type of PhD to do and, and, and that type of thing, I have learned that there um, are just so few um, women completing their PhDs and so few women working in research in many, many, many countries across the world. I think it might only be equal or slightly higher for women in, in I think, perhaps three countries. So I feel like there needs to be some attention paid there and getting women at the academic level involved in STEM careers is super critical because if we don't get them involved early, they're not going to go into those PhD and, and research pursuits. And we need to help facilitate that so that all of these, these glass ceilings that we hear about can get broken down. And of course, there isn't a silver bullet for that. But if the world could start somewhere, I would want folks to understand that that is a place that's that's underserved and under understood if that's a word um and i think that the perspective of women in, in research and in completing phds and all of their thought leadership is is grossly needed okay so a few more left if you could okay. change one thing if you could change one thing about women in stem what would it be I think I'd like to change that it wasn't a thing. I'd, I'd like for it to not be something that's that's so special that has to be talked about because it sort of infers that there's that there's something worrisome about it. I'm happy that it's evolving. I mean, there's absolutely an evolution towards creating um, the the gender equity and the pay equity and the access equity, um, and some places certainly more purposefully than others. But I mean, I've certainly approached my career in a very get out of my way kind of style, right? I haven't allowed for things like, um, just, just like any of these inequities to, to be in my way. And it could have been because I didn't really appreciate that it was there or just because I didn't have a tolerance for it. Um, I've personally not been adversely affected trying to navigate um, my STEM career as a woman and I've jumped all of my hurdles and, and I haven't settled for anything. Lab medicine though, I think, which makes it interesting is that it's such a largely female dominated industry, especially in specimen procurement, that it just seems like there should just be lots and lots of women there. But everyone's experience in agency is certainly not like mine. And so I want to make sure that that's that that's understood. I do not think that everyone's world is is perhaps as um, just as, as gifted as mine is. Um, so I appreciate the need for some targeted change and that, that that need continues to exist. But there's more room for conversation. So if you go back to my original, the gap I experience is that there isn't conversation and mentorship and broadening that a bigger community across the STEM industry so that perhaps that dialogue can more rapidly change the inequities that we're seeing. I think that if we had more collaboration across the space, um, the conversation around doing the right thing with the resources we have and all of our talents and experiences should be included in that. And I think all of that is untapped value. And so we can move that success needle a whole lot further if we perhaps focus in that direction. I, I do think that there's a huge gap in mentorship and that that will be really, really helpful if we could make that one little change. Okay. <clears throat> and finally, what is the one thing you wish for all women in STEM? 
Okay. Well, I, my hope and my wish, I went with a hope. So I hope that everyone in a STEM career could not get overly caught up in those obstacles, right? Because it is very easy to, to look at the barriers and, and perceive them to just be perpetually in the way for you. But we're in a STEM career, so we're going to assume we're already there. So we're already over some kind of hurdle in that we made it. And so if we could just take a minute to reflect and sort of swim in that glow of the wind, that where we're in this career that we've sought out, we've coveted it all along, we're doing something that we love, we're affecting the future, whether it's near term or far term, and it's really meaningful. STEM careers generate really, really meaningful outcomes. And I wouldn't want for all of these women to sort of, I would, I would want for them to figure out how they can represent and give back within the STEM industry, right? So how can we go and find other women, other girls, schools, you name it, how can we go and mentor and how can we prop open those doors so that people can more readily access? And maybe that means something global. Maybe that means an international um, involvement in some way, getting involved in some sort of international advocacy so we can make all of those sort of, you know, the, the countries that have the, the deeper challenges in, in creating the equity, maybe that's where we could, would, could focus some of our own voluntary time. I think sharing our own stories and our own experiences and our wins, it's going to benefit any woman coming into a, into a STEM role because we're always going to feel like we have some agency and choice, right? When we share all of our stories, we know that people have made choices. We know that people have had decisions to make, and we've been able to make them and still get the kind of career that we wanted. And I know I do anyways. I mean, I feel really accountable to all of my roles, and I, and I want to share with people sort of what I've done, how I've got here. It might be meaningful to you. It might not be, but at least it'll give you an understanding that there was agency and that there was choice. And so whether I'm this aspiring ballerina going nowhere <laughs> or whether I'm the leader of like this finest lab medicine program in Canada going everywhere. I know that I'm representing it and growing it as gracefully as, as I possibly can. And I've, and I've done lots of things that have all been my choice to do so today. The Dish is recorded, produced, and edited in Hamilton, close to the shores of Lake Ontario. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please let us know if you'd like to add a platform. You can reach us anytime at mlpao at mlpao.org. Every day, we make sure everyone knows how central medical laboratory professionals are to our healthcare system. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for your important work to keep Ontario safe and healthy.